Amen. Turn your, in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. We're going to continue in our series in 1 John. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed the uh, World Missions reports. Thank you so much, ladies, for the report. Andy, it's good to have you back. He's been traveling around the world, and really uh, these reports have been great to encourage my prayer life and to think more globally about what God is doing in the world. As you know, we've been going through this series for um, quite a while now uh, in 1 John. And one of the things that, that John wants us to get across in this book, the, the purpose for which he's writing the book, is, is to give us assurance that we know Christ, that we're actually in the faith. And as he begins the, the book here, he, he has a series of stark contrasts, and you've seen them in the other sermons over the last several weeks. In chapter one, he, he contrasts light and darkness. He, he also contrasts truth and falsehood, love and hate. And, and really tonight, we're going to come to really the, the end of the contrast here, uh, where he's contrasting the love for the Father and the love for the world. And we know that the contrast are actually a, a helpful tool in just helping us understand a concept, but also it's helpful. We use contrast to help us see them more clearly and how they apply to our lives. And, and really, uh, John does that right here in this, this uh, passage that we're looking at tonight. Let's actually look at the passage. Let's read it together. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we ask tonight that you would see not only and understand this contrast that you present here of loving you versus loving the world, but Lord, we pray that you would help us apply it to our own hearts and our own lives as we seek to serve you. Father, we ask that your, your word would take root in our hearts and that you would lead us and guide us as we go from this place to love you with all of our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I had the privilege, I was living up in uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri and had the, the privilege of uh, walking into a fitness center uh, when I noticed over to the side, uh, and it was in the middle of the winter, uh, this couple sitting there. And uh, they were just sitting over there all by themselves in a little corner, kind of on a little bench, uh, sitting out there holding hands. And uh, I didn't really think a whole lot out of it, you know, but uh, went in to work out. An hour later, I came back. And by the way, when I walked into the building, it was beginning to snow. So it was coming down pretty hard. When I walked out, there's probably three inches of snow on the ground. And guess what? That little couple was sitting over there, still in the same place, holding each other's hands, and uh, and oblivious to everything else that was going around the, uh, around them, obviously they were in love. You know, as you think about it, their affection for each other profoundly shaped 
their pleasure in what they were doing. You know, just being together, enjoying the warmth of each other's presence was really all they wanted. Even though there was about three inches of snow that had piled up on them, it was about 25 degrees and it was getting dark outside. You know, in many ways, in the same way, our priorities and practices are shaped also by our affections. We are shaped by who and what we love. And this is really John's big idea here in this passage is that our love for God would shape within us a pleasure for doing God's will. Augustine asked this question, what do you love? And he answered his own question. He says, love God and do as you please. He understood that if we love God, we will obey God and give ourselves wholeheartedly to God. We will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. However, the same is true in reverse. And he's addressing this here. If we love the world, we cannot give ourselves to God. And we will find very little pleasure in doing his will. Instead, we will find ourselves frustrated with the Christian life. And doing God's will would simply be a burden. And we will find our hearts cold and apathetic to the Lord. And this is why John gives us the first of these 10 imperatives in the book. Do not love the world or the things in the world, an uncompromising command. So I guess the question here is, what what exactly does John mean by the world here? Well, the New Testament uses this word about 188 times. John actually uses it more than any of the authors in the New Testament. He uses it 85 times and six times in this verse right here, or in these three verses. And and the Greek word for this is cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmos. In the Greek, it's spelled with a K. Uh, In English, we spell it with a C. But the word cosmos, the, the word world, has different connotations based on the different passages. You know, one connotation, it could stand for the earth or the universe, uh, another uh, uh, connotation might be the inhabitants of the earth or, or humanity. But I think the way Paul is using it here in this passage and is consistent with the way that he uses it many, many times is that the world is an evil system of human life and culture organized under the dominion of Satan and in opposition to God. Let me say that again. It's the world is an evil system of human life and culture organized under the dominion of Satan and in opposition to God. And so he says, do not love the things that are in opposition to God in a sense. And he gives three compelling reasons here in the passage as to why we're not to love the world. Let's cover those three. The first one is this. To love the world is incompatible with loving God. Look at verse 15, part B there. He says this, that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The reason we are not to love the world is because love for the Father and love for the world are mutually exclusive. It's impossible for those two things to coexist together. This is the point that John is making here. So why are they so incompatible? Well, to love the world is to give our affections to the things that oppose or hate God. It's actually the things that God hates. To love the world is to treasure things that actually prevent us 
from loving God and eventually actually bring ruin to our souls. So, so John makes it clear that, that the love for the world and our love for God can't coexist together. Jesus said himself, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And if you cannot serve God and money, neither can you love God and love the world at the same time. James says it a different way. He says in, in James chapter four, verse four, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So part of the question here then that we have to be asking ourselves as we look at this is how would I know if I'm loving the world? I mean, it feels kind of subjective. And, and you know, I would say that, that John is putting this in here and he, he's coming at this so directly with this imperative, just do not love the world, that it's probably a blind spot in most of our lives. In other words, the world is really tricky. It's deceitful. It's crafty. And we fall into loving the world and don't even realize it. And it really meshes in and sinks into to our church, into our families. It's all around us. So let me give you a test this morning. John does, a, or this evening, John does a great job of giving us all kinds of tests throughout the book of 1 John to see if we're in the faith. Let me give you a test. Here, here's what you could do. So the, the question is, how would I know if I'm loving the world? So take an area of your life in which you have affection for this thing, and that affection, at times, you feel like it rivals your affection for the Lord. Think about that particular area. You might even have an unhealthy attachment that you deal with over and over again. And, and work through these questions. I want to give you five questions to think about. But the place to start, if you find yourself in this, in answering these questions, is, is just with repentance. is confessing to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm sorry that I've loved the world more than I've loved you in this area. Here's the first question. Have I ever surrendered this specific area to the Lord? Think about that for a second. Now, we would all say if we're believers that we've surrendered our lives to the Lord, but, but sometimes it's, it's much more poignant and conviction to think about a particular area in your life that the Lord might be putting his finger on and saying, that I will not be a rival with that. So have I ever surrendered this specific area to the Lord? Here's the second question. Am I willing to do whatever God desires in this area? You ever come to the scripture that way? You read the scripture and say, God, whatever you show me in this passage, I'm going to do. That's, that's a dangerous question. But it's also really dangerous to come to a time of confession with convicting questions like this and saying, Lord, whatever I find here, I'm going to do, I'm going to do your will. Am I willing to do whatever God desires in this area? Here's the third question. Have I ever counted the cost to follow Christ in this area? You know, a lot of times we, we read things in scripture and it's like, of course, that's just what Christians do, but we've never really played it out. What would it look like for me to be devoted to the Lord in this area in these situations. 
and you begin to play that out in real life situations, in real life uh, circumstances at work, in relationships that you might have, and you begin to count the cost. I mean, Jesus reminds us that we are to count the cost when building a tower. What man who's building a tower and doesn't count the cost? Here's the fourth question. Am I willing to give up being anxious and trust him with it? And that could be a real challenge right there. Think about some of the things that you're anxious about right now that you're worried about. Probably that anxiety, that worry is probably an indicator of some of the things that we care about the most, right? We're not that worried about things that we really don't care about. But also, it could be an indicator that those things that you're most concerned about, that you're most worried about, are actually things that rival your affection for the Lord. And that's why you're anxious and having a hard time trusting the Lord with those things. Here's a fifth question. Will I be able to thank God for whatever may happen in this area? Will I be able to thank God for whatever happens in this area? It's one thing to, to say, Lord, I'll do whatever, whatever you do with this, I'll, I'll be content with it. It's a whole nother thing to say to the Lord, and whatever you decide to do, I will be thankful for it. I'll be grateful because I trust in your goodness. So to love the world is incompatible with loving God. Here's the second thing that I think he goes after incentive for not loving the world is this, that to love the world is to pursue life apart from God. Look at verse 16 here. It says, and specifically without the little hyphenated phrase there, he says this, for all that is in the world is not from the father, but it's from the world. So when we love the things of the world, we're attempting to find life from the world apart from God. In a sense, we're telling God that we can do better. So we take the things that, we come, that come from the hand of God and we try to squeeze life out of them. Many times they're, they're gifts from God, but we try to find significance in those things. We try to find security through those things. We try to find uh, purpose and fulfillment through those things. And, 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 and John highlights three things that are in the world. Notice that he says to not love the world and the things in the world. But before I get there, I want to make a, a, a sidebar comment. I want to comment about how we think about the world before I, I go any further. I think as we think about the world, a lot of times we think in, in two veins here. One is we think of the world as things in themselves. In other words, uh, you know, we think of money or possessions or travel to nice places or wearing nice clothes or having a achieved those things uh, being uh, worldly. But th- this is not at all what John is, is talking about. These things are morally uh, neutral. God made them and he, and he gives them to us. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, that if, if you have a lot of money, then that's worldly. Or if, uh, if you drive a nice car, this is not what John is talking about. Secondly, I think a lot of times we think of the world as external to us. That what they do, what people out there do, their activities or the places they go, the things out there 
or the things that are worldly. And we also you know, make comments like this sometimes about our, our children or, or those around us. As, and, and as we think about, you know, how they're doing spiritually, they, they just got in with the wrong crowd or, or they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and all of this may be true. They may have been things that factor in and affect how they are. And, and these are certainly maybe worldly activities in which God is not pleased in certain places where the main focus is doing things that displease God. Certainly there are those places and those things and those activities. But the three things that he mentions here in the world that he mentions are all internal to us and have to do with our attitude towards the things out there in the world. It has to do with how we relate to them, our posture in which we relate to those things. And, and here they are. You got them there in kind of the, the parenthetical phrase there. These are things, the things of the world, and they lead to pursuing a life apart from God. So the first one is the desires of flesh. And and really what he's talking about here is just the cravings of our sinful flesh. Remember that even though we become Christians, we still deal with this corrupt nature that that we find ourselves striving with constantly. He's not, necess- he's not talking about just our physical appetites here. So think about it like this. Our, our body needs food and it expresses itself in hunger. And, and God is good and he gives food to satisfy hunger. But then our sinful nature turns food and hunger into gluttony. You see how this works together? So God, being good, gives us food. He gives us natural appetites for food. But then through our sinful nature, it perverts it, it distorts it, and it turns it into something that God never meant for it to be. The desires of our flesh does this. It also turns it into an idol. Here's the second thing here. So we have the desires of the flesh, but we also have the desires of the eyes. The eyes are the the portal between the world and our sinful nature. We all know that through our eyes that our appetites of our sinful nature is, is often nurtured in such a way that simple looks eventually become covetousness. And so we see something. We desire it, and then eventually what we find is that our appetites within us are so stirred up, we have to have it. And it's amazing what we do in our minds to justify and rationalize that appetite. Our eyes, the desires of our eyes, it turns need into greed and beauty into vulgarity. Very good gifts that God has given us and it turns it into something that it was never supposed to meant to be. Think about David. You know, David had everything that someone could possibly want. He had riches, King David. He had riches. He was, uh, God was blessing his kingdom. Uh, But then he let his eyes wander and he lusted after Bathsheba. He, uh, and he followed the pursuit and the desires of, of his eyes. Here's the third thing. Ways of the world is the pride of life. 
And, and here's what the pride of life is. It's just the pride of life is, is pride that's marked by a deep concern for one's status and image. And usually they build their significance around their accomplishments and their possessions. They have a hunger to be admired. They want to be envied by others and a desire to be at the top of the pecking order. Really, essentially what they want consistently is recognition. This is what the pride of life is all about. Rather than the recognition of what God has given them accompanied with a thankful heart, they substitute that and the pride of life wants to take credit for everything they have in their lives. This is the pride of life. So all of these things are not from God. And that's what he says here in this passage. They are from the world whose ruler is Satan. Now, let me illustrate it with this, or let's go back to the garden for a second. So Genesis chapter three, you don't have to turn there, but you know the story. And we know that in chapter three, verse one, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now think about that right off the bat. It identifies Satan as crafty. Uh, This is exactly how these things that we just mentioned here reminds us of the pattern of temptation that these different areas that we've been talking about lead us into fall. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Notice right off the bat, he just plants the seed. He's kind of indirect. He's very subtle. He just says, really? You might want to, did God really say that? And planting a seed that God may not be who he says he is, nor can be trusted. She responds, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Or he's responded, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, here's the serpent. Satan doesn't give up. He says, but the, but the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you will not surely die. So here he's directly confronting Eve and he's challenging exactly what God has said. No, you won't. You won't die. And you see what's going on here is that Satan is trying to set himself up in the place or in rival to God himself in Eve's heart. And he does a really good job. Obviously, we know the rest of the story. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it wasn't good for food. God had already said, you can't eat of this. It, this is just like the, the, the desires of the flesh. It makes us believe that, that we can uh, take something that God has given us and violate the purpose for which he's given us, given it to us, and that it will be satisfying. This is exactly what Eve says. So when, it, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. There's the pride of life. It's like, wow. 
you know, no, I can't eat this. God has said I can't. But also, it, it looks good to me. It looks pleasing to me. But thirdly, it'll make me wise, the pride of life. And she gave it to her husband, and the, the rest is history. You see, the, the very things that we see here in this story is at the very core of Satan's strategy, and that is to tempt us to pursue a life apart from God. This is part of the essence of sin. It's, it's disobedience, but also it's to find life apart from God himself. And Jesus Christ makes it clear in John 10, 10. He says, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. He says it again. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father but through me, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that speak of me. Jesus Christ makes it really clear that even your religious activity, studying your Bible can be a source of ruin uh, from the standpoint or doing religious activities by putting confidence in this. And it, but it's the scriptures that actually point towards Jesus Christ as our life. And what Jesus is saying here is that everything else is a cheap counterfeit. Here's the third reason, incentive to not love the world. To love the world is to share in its destruction. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So not only does the world fail to satisfy, not only does the world fail to fulfill its promises, but the world is perishing and disintegrating along with its desires. You know, I would just ask you tonight, who wants to invest what little time we have here on earth in the things that are bankrupt and have no hope? If we love the world, we ally ourselves with destruction On the other hand, the promise of God is this, that if we obey God's word, we live forever. And we know that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther wrote this. I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But the things I've placed in God's hands, I still possess. Many of you remember Jim Elliott's famous saying, the famous missionary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his life, to gain which he cannot lose. You know, as we approach the table tonight, we really do come to renew our love for God and renounce our love for the world. But we have to be reminded of a couple of things. You know, as the bride of Christ, if we're honest with ourselves, we have all shared in a love affair with the world just this past week. The good news of what we're talking about and coming to the table tonight is that we're in need of cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our groom, we're reminded by the table tonight, stands ready to forgive. As we come to the table also tonight, we want to grow in our love for God but the, but the, the answer, the solution to this is not just to try harder. 
Our love is only a response to understanding and receiving the perfect, life-changing, redemptive love of the Father through Jesus Christ. And we see God's love clearest at the cross of Christ. So as we come tonight, as we're reminded of the, 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 the blood and the bread, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, let us come to him and be reminded of his love and partake of that as we feast on his love together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stiff reminder not to love the world. And Lord, we, we pray, we ask for your mercy to help us to see the areas in which we do love the world, the world, the, the ways in which the world has crept into the parts of our lives that uh, should only have your presence there. Father, we, we ask that as we go forward in our weeks, that we would ask these questions, that you would show us areas in which we uh, are failing to love you and that we have uh, fallen in love with the world. Father, even as we come to the table tonight, Lord, would you renew our faith and followership in the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, would you renew our understanding of your love for us? And Lord, would it be so compelling in our lives that it would reprioritize our lives and help us to make choices that please you and lead to greater love for you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.